as a church. We started that at the beginning of January, and this year we just really wanted to focus on the theme of wisdom and the fact that we need a lot of wisdom in this world, and not just because of technology and complexity and politics and all that kind of stuff, but because we are human beings uh, in dependence on God. And so that's, that's kind of our theme. We're just asking that God would help us to be, to be wise in the concrete, everyday life and all the decisions that we have to make, some conscious and some unconscious. So we are going to turn now to the New Testament, to the epistle of James, the book of James. Man, what a, what a brutal book. This one will knock you around, which is good for us. Today we're going to be in James. We're just going to do one verse, but we'll be bouncing around the whole thing. So as I said, uh, the, the theme of wisdom, and for this series we titled it Walking in this World with Wisdom. You may wonder why wisdom in James, maybe you don't think about uh, the book of James in those terms, um, but it's actually been called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it is one of the earliest letters that was written. So out of all the New Testaments, this is one of the first ones to go. James, there's question about who this particular writer writer is. From the outset, we know his name, that his name is James, and we assume that it is James, the brother of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. There was also another James. There was James who was the disciple of Jesus, um, but it's likely that it was not him. James is a very common word in New Testament times. Actually, if you look at the Greek, it's actually Jacob. And what do you think of when you think of Jacob? Well, the main patriarch of Israel, where the 12 tribes stemmed from. And here we have James as the leader of the Jerusalem church and brother of Jesus Christ. James died in A.D. 62. So if you think about a timeline, A.D. after death, now now they change it to C.E. and B.C.E. But the point is that Jesus changed history and James probably died in A.D. 62. Jesus would have been crucified around the 30s somewhere. So sometime between now and then, James writes this particular letter. If we look at this identity and the reason why um, J- James is considered to be the brother of Jesus and the writer of this text is, like I said, James is a common name. And so it would have been identified as, as one of the main people. How are you going to identify James if there's a bunch of Jameses? Well, the reason why he doesn't need to go into a giant explanation of who he is is that James was one of the leaders and would have been well known. If you go to Matthew 13.55, Matthew 13.55, This is in Jesus' hometown. 
And this is said of Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Imagine being the brother of Jesus. That'd be a tough, that'd be a tough job. The perfect Jesus, and you're his brother. Sibling rivalry at its best, for sure. We know that eventually this James came to know Christ, Jesus, as his Lord, as his Savior, as the King of Kings. And he identifies himself as the servant of Jesus. He doesn't throw his weight around and call himself brother. But he is a servant. We will get more to that. And we see that later he becomes leader of the church. We know from the resurrection appearances that he believes that his brother rose from the dead. In, in Acts twelve seventeen, which Acts tells us about what happened after the death of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. In Acts 12:17 we see James as the church's leader. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and he said, and this is Peter talking, "Tell these things to James and to the brothers," emphasizing his key role at that time. In Acts 15, you have something called the Jerusalem Council. And this is when you get into, when, when you hear of James, a lot of times scholars and different ones will try to pit James against Paul, but we know from Acts 15 that that's not how it worked, that James was in full agreement with Paul and the spread of the gospel, that James wasn't trying to add circumcision and other things like that um, as, as an identity marker for the people of God but that it was going to be the good news of Jesus Christ and his grace alone that saved. And therefore, the Gentiles are included. If you look at Acts 15, you get to see that whole conversation and debate that takes place in the church. And interestingly, we hear that James writes something to these churches and basically says that they don't have to do all that stuff. Sure, don't go into sexual immorality. Don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. A few things, but the point is the message of Jesus Christ. And that that is the way in which the community is to be centered around. So, it is this James who writes this particular book. Another thing we learn is that he is writing to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion is basically a fancy word for scattering, that the Jewish people had been scattered all over the nations, and that they were not one people, and they really weren't one people for quite a very long time. So he is writing to a scattered and persecuted church, an oppressed church, and we'll see that here soon in more detail. One thing that I think is important for us to see is that James is connected to Jesus. Jesus as his brother and that in this epistle he focuses on the Sermon on the Mount. There are several allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in this and I wanted us to see this. And one of the reasons why I think that's important is through church history 
James gets minimized. Um, it may have been one of the later documents to get included in the canon of Scripture. And then you have Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, and that he called this epistle the epistle of straw. And it's not. It's connected to Jesus Christ. It is full of gospel, as we see as we walk through this book. But what was really cool was to see how this was connected to the Sermon on the Mount. And I wanted us to see that. We went through the Sermon on the Mount a few years ago when we were going through our study in Matthew. And check this out as we kind of walk through the book here. I'm going to kind of be going back and forth between Matthew 5 to 7 and James for us to see these amazing connections. In Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what does Jesus say? You're blessed when you're persecuted. He says, be happy when you're struggling. What does James say in verse 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Matthew 5, 10-12. Excuse me, 548. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus tells us. James 1 Four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Matthew 7, 7 and 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? James 1. Four, excuse me, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Matthew five twenty two. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. James 1.19 Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Jesus, in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Matthew 5.19,
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Matthew 5, verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James 2.13 For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3, 18, And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Matthew 7, 1 to 5, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. James 4, 11 to 12, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Getting closer to being done. Matthew six nineteen to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. And steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James 5, 2, 1 and 2. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 5.12 Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 5.10 As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Matthew 5:33 and 34. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
Skipping to verse 37, let what you have, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That's Jesus. And this is James. 5.12 But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James, the brother of Jesus, knew Jesus well. And this whole epistle is kind of like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And what we learn from it is that he wants us to see our lives and to see this world, see the circumstances that we are in with the eyes of wisdom. James says that in 1.5 where wisdom comes up. And again in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, when he gives us a definition of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's what wisdom looks like. Wisdom tied to this idea of perfection and completeness, or to use our buzzword, wholeness. James 1, 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You want to be whole in life? You want to be wise in life? Listen to Jesus. Listen to James. So again, we see James, the brother of Jesus full of the language of Jesus. And yet, he identifies himself as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this servant word is very important. It comes from a Greek word that I believe is said as doulos, D-O-U-L-U-S. And this word is much debated about how you translate it. In fact, the preface of the ESV goes through reasons of why they translated it in different ways. It can be translated a servant. So the ESV has the word servant here. The NASB has the word bond servant. The New Living Translation has the word slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, when we hear the word slave, a lot of different things goes off in our minds and the horrendous history of America and abuse of slaves. And so they try to translate this in different ways. I think some for good reasons and also some maybe for not so good reasons. But the point is, is that to be a slave was to be controlled by someone or something else, to be controlled by another entity, to be ruled by 
another power with a capital P. And I thought one way to illustrate this would be the fact that we are born into this world with the fact that we must serve somebody. The Bible's picture of human beings is one of slaves, utterly controlled by an orientation that is completely compulsed by self, by sinful desires, and by satanic powers. Bob Dylan, got to serve somebody. 1979, I was one years old. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may call me Terry, you may call me Timmy, you may call me Bobby, you may call me Zimmy, you may call me RJ, you may call me Ray, you may call me anything, but no matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil. Or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. True. And the picture that the Bible gives us is that we are born slaves. Not born morally neutral, but born slaves. Ephesians, Paul gives us a picture Of this, and so does Jesus in John. Let's look at what Jesus has to to say first. Jesus, when he's talking to the religious leaders and they think they're great because of their pedigree, he says, You are ruled by somebody. You are ruled by another power. You are ruled by Satan and by your own sinful desires. John 8 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Classic verse. What he says before when he's answering them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so he says to these Pharisees, You're not children of Abraham. You're children of Satan. There's a different ruling power in your life. And you are a slave to your sin. And so everyone without Christ is a slave, is ruled by something. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. A stark picture. A psychological category that you won't hear among a counselor. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The picture of human beings without Christ, utterly enslaved, to demonic, supernatural power, enslaved to false gods and demons, controlled by lusts and sinful self, is the picture of man without Jesus. Our default setting is that without Christ. To be ruled by passions and ourselves. David Foster Wallace was a novelist who died in his 40s, sadly committed suicide, almost won the Pulitzer Prize. In 2005, he gave a graduation speech to Kenyon College. This is kind of lengthy, but I thought it was a real good way to picture this slavery that all of us have without Jesus. So this is written and told to a group of graduates. And again, he's not a Christian. This is what he says. Here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV, on your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, which of course they are, but it's that they're unconscious. 
their default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And so the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be the lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talk about in the great outside world of wanting and achieving The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness. The default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite Very powerful, very true, very sad. That is the worldly orientation, which James also talks about, the pride of life. The slavery that we all have apart from Jesus, the default setting. But the good news is that there is a different kind of slavery. This kind that James is talking about, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant, not of the owner and the power that is trying to kill you. Satan, sin, which we learn from James, which leads to death. But the servant of the one who comes to free you. The servant of the Lord of glory. The one who came in the flesh to die for sinners. That servant. Two different spheres. To use back our Proverbs language, we have the way of folly, the way of wisdom. We have two different slaveries. One, utterly bound to the sinful orientation. Or two, bound to the Creator and the Redeemer that came to redeem us from our slavery. Jesus Christ. And so when you think of the Christian life, when you think of wisdom, think of a slave. But again, the slave to that kind of person. The self-giving one. And it's about being taken from one sphere to another sphere. From being owned by one thing to owned by another. To being owned by the God who is love. To being able to operate and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Who came to set you free. And that's what James. That's James's view of himself. Of his identity. And that's James's view of the world. James a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Fancy word, like I said earlier, 
scattering. The people of God, ethnic Israel, were scattered because of their sin. After Solomon, they were judged. The kingdom was split north and south, Jeroboam. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 11. Later we see how everybody is taken off to Babylon in 2 Kings 24. And then in the prophets, we start getting this picture of that their exile is going to end. Their judgment that God has placed on them will one day be gathered back to Zion and all of them will come back home. And so he is writing to these 12 tribes in the dispersion, these 12 tribes that have been scattered all over the place to all nations. And we know the Jewish people scattered all over the place to all nations. And so this is primarily written to these ethnic Jews. But as we know again from the New Testament, the restoration of the people of God grafted somebody else in, the Gentiles, the Greeks. They're scattered to the dispersion. They're scattered in all this Greek culture that valued independence and autonomy and everything that we value. And that they were scattered there, but that the true Israel are those that have faith in Jesus Christ. So he is writing to not just ethnic Israelites, but Israelites that are scattered who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And anybody within Greek culture, anybody within any culture in our land who trusts in Jesus is a part of this one people of God. And so there was this picture that was, there was this longing that was happening even in between of the Testaments. Um, they say from other writings that, of course, were not in the canon. There was this longing that one day the 12 tribes of Israel would come back. The Messiah would come and everything would be restored. And that, of course, is Jesus, James's brother. And James says, greetings, the last word of verse 1. Greetings doesn't actually come up much in the epistles. I think it's only used like one other time. But James said greetings. Interestingly, another reason why this is probably James, the brother of Jesus in Acts, when he's writing the letter to everybody, he says greetings. So greetings, I wish you the best. This is for your happiness. What I'm about ready to say is good for you. It's for your joy. If you want to be happy, if you want to be healthy, if you want to be whole, if you want to be wise, listen to me. That's what James has to say to us. And so this is good news. Everything that James is going to talk about for us is good news. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Good news for your happiness. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's good for you to hear. If you think you're in with God and you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue, you need to hear that. Two twenty. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
I need to hear that. That's good news. Three, six to eight. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Four, one to four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Our relational conflict, you know what the problem is? It's not this that your passions are, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? These desires, this default setting that still lingers in there? You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. Going away from your owner. You've been saved. You've been rescued. You are a a part of the people of God. And when we do that, we commit adultery. We look for another master. It's good for us to hear that. 5-1. Here's a brutal one. Come now, you rich. That's us. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. One of the things we learn about this letter is that it's written to these scattered people and that there's probably famine going on. We learn about a famine in Acts. We learn about a persecution of Saul that sent everybody scattered who became Paul. Um, Agrippa, there was another big persecution. Later on in AD 70, there was the Jewish war. And so what we have is we have the scattered, persecuted people, and then we start to have these people living in poverty and these rich, wealthy landowners and the not-so-rich. And so this letter is clothed with this idea of wealth and poverty and the way in which we might show partiality. And so he is rebuking those who may show partiality with their money. And that when people walk into the assembly, don't treat them better because they got money. So James is speaking to people that are living in that. No partiality is what he calls us to. So to hear that, to hear that as Americans is good for us. 5.9, do not grumble against one another. It can also be translated, do not complain against one another. Don't do that. Don't do that, BJ. That's good news for us to hear. 19 to 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's good news. It's good news for us to tell others who might wander, who might wander from our midst, to gather them back. You can still come back. God's grace is still big. So he can say greetings. He can give us gospel. And James does. In verse 4, 6, speaking of God, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
That's James quoting Proverbs, some of the chapter that we actually read today. That God is a God who gives grace. In James 1, 16-18, we see that God is a good God who gives good gifts. And that His people are ones that have been brought forth by His own will. That God is the primary initiator in our salvation. That that's good news. That our default self-centeredness is too much. And yet God is a much bigger power that can rescue us from that. And so God brought us forth by His grace to be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And so the ultimate wisdom, of course, is found in Jesus. It's found in the brother of James. The one who can rescue us from this power. And the one who can give us a new power on the inside because nothing by ourselves from within is good enough. But the good news is that God comes. That God sends His Son. That God sends the Lord of glory to come for us, to rescue us, to give us over to a new power Himself. The one who is love. The one who is mercy and grace. So I encourage you to think through that as we go through the book of James. That everything that's said is good. That the way in which to look at the world is through this. That the way in which to look at yourself, to view yourself, is as a slave of God. The one who is love. So we're going to take communion with that in mind. Worship team, communion, let's do that.